Let's pray again. Lord, uh, much prayer is needed as we approach Romans 9, which is, for some, the precipice of a great, great cliff of doubt and unbelief, and for others, just the foothills of the grand mountain of God by which, at which we draw near to you, and which I have done. And so I thank you, Lord, for powerfully using Romans 9 in my life, even to convert my heart to the gospel of your Son, and I pray that you would do that. Lord, indeed, that as we deal with a difficult doctrine, we would come away with a deep conviction of the love of God, which surpasses knowledge. That is what we need no less. And we need your supernatural hand and plan and power to bring it to pass. And we know that you have predestined these things. So we look to you in hope. Amen. Thank you, Lord. John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide even if you screw it up. I appointed you that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In Daniel chapter 4, a precious, precious scripture to me. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, we'll start partway through it. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Says King Nebuchadnezzar, one of my favorites. So we've been in Romans chapter 8 for four weeks. We looked at, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. We looked at verses 3 and 4, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And it's that cry, Abba, Father, that Daniel Williams preached on last week, that makes all the difference when we're suffering. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Amen. Amen? Amen. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, and it is that foreknowledge, that predestining, 
that we are going to get into today in Romans 9. But the context of this is what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing. And now we come to Romans 9. Let's just read the first three verses. You can see Paul raising his hand and swearing as if in a courtroom. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. This is the closest thing to saying, I swear to God, that we get in Scripture. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. That means damned. That means put outside of God. That I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Skip to chapter 10. Romans 10, 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We just read the deep cry of this man's heart. Paul called God as his witness that his heart is filled with pain. At the same time, it is filled with the love of God, Romans 8, his heart is filled with pain and anguish. What else do you think Paul is going to say in between the verses we just read at the start of Romans 9 and at the end of Romans 9? This chapter contains clear and powerful teaching on one of the most difficult and controversial concepts in the Christian faith, predestination. This is challenging, but there are treasures and riches waiting for us, sandwiched between the verses we just read. In a recent sermon on Romans 8, I said, I think Romans 8 may be the most important chapter in the New Testament. But it was while reading Romans 9 that I, finally made up my mind to turn my heart to God once and for all. And it has become very precious to me. Or perhaps we are about to find that it was then that God changed my mind and I willingly followed God. Let's read. Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kin. Romans 9, 1 through 3 the cry of Paul's heart for his 
for his, his clan, his kinfolk, his, his people, reminds us of when Moses said to God on behalf of the Israelites in the wilderness, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Exodus 32, 32. Think about that. Moses prayed that to the Lord. To wish to suffer God's curse for them is a strong demonstration of love. But neither Moses nor Paul could withstand the judgment of God or take it upon themselves on behalf of another person because they also were sinful men. But Christ, who had no sin, became sin for us, redeeming us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Only the Holy One can substitute for the sinful. And that is exactly what Christ did. As God, Christ has the right to judge and the ability to have mercy. And that is our theme and our title today. As God, Christ has the right to judge and the ability to have mercy. Romans 9 verse 4. Paul continues of his, of his kinsmen. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This translation into English from the original Greek manuscripts is a correct translation. It reads in Greek, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. As God, Christ has the, has the authority to judge and the ability to have mercy. And so here we have this race, the people of Israel, or the people descended from Abraham. And all the rest of Romans so far has been going back and forth in, in about the love of God and the gospel, the sin of man and the mercy of God, the Gentiles and the Jews, the Gentiles who didn't deserve it, didn't do anything good or bad, but got grafted in like dead branches that were on the ground, got picked up and, and trimmed just right, and, and then a branch from the natural tree, the natural family tree of the people of God, God, branches were broken off so that they might be grafted in, and the life, the roots, the foundation supports them. And so you have one household of faith, one, one living tree, and Christ is the root, and Christ causes the fruit to be born. And he chose the Jews and he chose the Gentiles and caused the fruit to be born and to remain. We didn't choose him, but he chose us. But some of the natural branches were broken off. And this is the cause of the anguish and the cry in Paul's heart because they're, they're extended relatives of his. They're his kin. And, and he is deeply grieved 
And the question has to be asked, since God planted the tree and caused it to begin to grow, why didn't it grow? Did the Word of God, the, did the Word of God fail? Verse 6, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, says the Lord. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, quote, about this time next year I will return, God said to Abraham, before his wife had conceived, because it takes nine months from conception to birth. It could take less, but it doesn't take more. Eventually the baby is too big. That baby was not there. That baby was not conceived in Sarah's womb. And God said to Abraham a year before the child's birth, before Isaac's birth, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Guess what? Sarah already had a son. And he was a little kid. His name was Ishmael and he was running around the tents. Right? So now there's another son and... And the firstborn son doesn't get the covenant promises, blessings, doesn't get to be named as the offspring of promise. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election Election means picking or choosing. When you elect somebody, you made the check mark on the ballot. And if the election is done with integrity, then whoever got picked is the one that got picked. It's, I, if it works, it's the people's choice, right? And, or the electoral college's choice. In order that God's purpose of picking choosing, predestining, foreordaining, in order that God's purpose of choice of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now that's countercultural. In that society, if, if you had taken, you know, this, this fellow, this family, and he says, all right, firstborn son, who according to all of our traditions of our ancestors, all of, the, all of the ways of our culture, the way it's done, the way it's always been, the firstborn son, your daughters, daughters are on the side, uh, secondborn, thirdborn, fourth, they're, they're, they come after. The firstborn son gets the main inheritance, and he's, the, he's, the, he's like the head. He gets it. It passes to him, and I'll give some to the other kids too. You know, and the women they can marry and get somebody else's inheritance, right? That's, that's culture at the time. I think God doesn't endorse that here in, in the sense, God, God didn't want to keep up with that tradition. 
Here God is saying, here's what happened. So you had Abraham, and we said, God appeared to Abraham and prophesied to him, in a year I'm going to come back, and your wife Sarah, who was old, old, is going to have a son. It was already impossible, and the child was born in her old age after she was beyond the age of childbearing. And Isaac, so you have Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and Isaac, the next in line. Ishmael, the other son, he's, he's excluded. God blessed him too and gave him good things. But he was excluded from the covenant of promise. And that was God's choice and God's doing. So God was good to go both of them. But the covenant of promise came through Isaac. Now Isaac grows up, he gets married. He marries this woman, Rebecca. She's pregnant. There's two boys in her belly, and one's not greater than the other. They're twins. And, and the first one born was Esau, and the second one born was Jacob, right? Firstborn Esau. Did he get the rights of the firstborn? Did he get the blessing? I'm going to say kind of, but God saw to it that it was taken away from him. God had planned ahead of time. In fact, he prophesied to Rebekah while the children were still in her womb, twins, and God knew that Esau was going to be born first. God told Rebekah, verse, uh, verse 12, the older will serve the younger. That means instead of the one being the firstborn and the other children kind of being subject or under the firstborn son, that order is going to be turned upside down and God's going to do something different, undeserved. And God says, this is just and right. And I can't imagine how much their neighbors would have wrestled with this. Like we are going to be wrestling with the rest of these, this doctrine of predestination as we continue in Romans 9. That must have been very hard for them. I don't think it's very hard for me to read back and look at their culture, which I don't exactly share, and say, okay, second-born son got the blessing. You know, here it's all equal. Here it's all equal. Here it's all equal. You see, our generation has this doctrine of equality, this doctrine of fairness. And this, in our culture, is what we cherish. And this is what's going to be hard for us. If something isn't equal, we want to make it right. Has anybody ever heard of Harrison Bergeron? Elijah, have you read this story? Okay, talk to Elijah. It's one of the finest stories I ever read, and it really helped me with understanding Romans 9, but we'll skip it. Um, It's about fairness and about equality. And it, it discusses which is ultimately right. Fairness and equality or can different people be given gifts that differ according to what they were born with? And in the story, Harrison Bergeron, he's the main character in the story, right? He's the, he's the great mighty uh, dancer and uh, performer in theater, and he can jump literally like higher than everybody else. He can jump higher than people's heads. And, uh, and, to, and that's not fair. So to make it fair, they put really heavy weights on him. And his parents, uh, his dad is like super smart, and his mom is like gifted, talented, educated. 
And so one of his parents, the government, to make everything equal and fair, gives these glasses, but they're not glasses like mine. I happen to be um, way past legally blind without my glasses or contacts. These are like double correction for double the, the limit of legal blindness. One of his parents is issued these fairness glasses because he's, I think it's the dad, is so smart that, um, that to limit him from think, thinking so many thoughts so much faster and better than those around him and outperforming everybody else and succeeding in a way that's very unbalanced, they give him these glasses that are, are so thick that they give him an awful constant headache and he literally can't think the same thought for more than 10 seconds. And so that dumbs him down and now things are equal. And then his mom has a similar handicap and Harrison and uh, the other uh, lady are, that he's with are performing on stage. And one day he jumps up and he breaks all his bonds. He's got all kinds of like weighted vests and th irons on his legs and things. And he jumps up and by his great God-given strength, he bursts the bonds asunder, right? And, and the lady simultaneously jumps up and I think they meet and kiss in the air or something. And the, and the fairness police, um, literally, while well, the act is being performed on stage and you can't have some actors that are so much better than others. So hence the, the limitations so that everybody acts and performs just as well as everybody else. So things are right because fairness is just. That's the problem. In our generation, we equate fairness and equality with justice and righteousness. And this passage for us then is going to be offensive. In the play, um, the, the fairness police raises her shotgun and shoots them down. And that's where the story ends. Except the father and mother are watching on TV and, um, and the father is starting to figure out what's going on and realize that's my son, but then the headache is too great and he just forgets it and they can't, they can't it, it, everything's equal. It's obviously that's wrong. And let that uh, metaphorical story be um, challenge our ideas of equality because the way God does things, it's not equal and it's not fair. What shall we say then, verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? I've skipped verse 13. Um, she was told before anybody was born, the older will serve the younger, right? unreversing the cultural expectation. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau, the older boy, I hated. Whoa, 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 whoa. God is love. Is this a little offensive to you yet? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There are different interpretations of this. And one is that hated there as, it's, as that same word is used in a few places in the Bible, including Genesis, means rejected or ignored. It doesn't really carry the weight of the word, the English word, hate, because hate is an active thing. So one possible explanation of this is that hate here is, is a ignoring or a passing over, a skipping uh, Esau and going right on to Jacob. It's a it's, it's God passively hating. He doesn't actively hate anybody. Uh, I, I think that would be pretty hard for us in our culture to swallow, wouldn't it? Um, that might not be, though, what it means. 
Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This does not say beyond the shadow of a doubt if hated here means active hate or passive rejection. And you're going to have to decide that, but if you were to read on, you would see that the context of it sounds less like this one that we feel would let God off the hook for doing something that we deem as bad, and it sounds more like the, the active God, God hated, Esau, like this translation into English is the best one. And to us in our generation, uh, Americans, millennials, generation, whatever the letters is, Z's, whatever we're on, um, that is deeply offensive, is it not? We started with a reading from John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a tough one. That's a tough one for people in our culture. It's the better one. If I did not choose God and God chose me, the result of the biblical doctrine of predestination is I'm meek. The result of the biblical doctrine of predestination is if I didn't earn it, then I am deeply grateful. The result of the biblical doctrine of predestination is that if he chose me and I didn't chose him, but he appointed me to bear fruit and fruit that remains, is an incredible meekness with gratitude that overflows with thanksgiving and praise. It's a security that no religion, no other religion can offer you. If we had to choose the best God or the best religion, this is it. And this doctrine of predestination is better and more appealing. And so now you ask me, well, you're just trying to make God sound good because you're a Christian and you want to be right. Oh, no. Oh, no. God is the best God that ever could have been. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, in all possible worlds or the best of all possible worlds. We used it a couple of weeks ago. This is the best of all possible worlds when we were talking about suffering in the Christian life. And we said it's better that God makes the Christian life so that he goes with us down into the, so that he leads me in paths of righteousness. What's the next verse in Psalm 23? After leading him in paths of righteousness? Where do the paths of righteousness lead? They lead down into the valley of the shadow of death. That's a bad place. That's a place of pain and of darkness. When you're in a valley, the sun don't shine so well. It's dark, it's cold, and you can't see very far. Some of you are in the valley. Know today that the Lord is good. 
this doctrine of predestination is right because the biblical God is better than all other possible gods. He is the greatest. And therefore, the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of predestination must be true. And it's clearly presented in Romans 9. Now we have some questions. We have some questions that aren't totally clearly spelled out in the scripture. And how exactly does predestination work? Methodists disagree with Lutherans, disagree with Presbyterians, right? So there's some question here. But the right answer is going to be the one that most glorifies God. And you were made to glorify God. So find that answer and land on it. I'm going to read a note from the Reformation Study Bible. Um, God does not choose to elect or save everybody. That's the first thing that's so hard about this. God does not choose to elect or save everybody. He reserves the right to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Some receive the grace and mercy of election. Others, God passes over, leaving them in their sin. No one, uh, the, the non-elect receive justice. The elect receive mercy. No one receives injustice. And this is what we need to get to. And this is where God is trying to lead us in this chapter. It is his decision how merciful he is going to be. Yet, he is never guilty of being unrighteous toward anybody. Turn back to Romans 9. Romans 9.14. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, very purpose, I have raised you up. Remember Pharaoh? Remember the 10 plagues? Remember the people of Egypt oppressed and suffering for 400 years? And with a mighty hand, God brought them out. And how did he do it? He sent plagues. Boom, 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 boom. And Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time, was raised up. Why? Nebuchadnezzar said earlier in Daniel, we didn't read it, uh, it is God who sets up kings. Pharaoh was raised up for this very purpose, God says, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Who hasn't, who in, at least in Western culture, hasn't heard of Moses or the Exodus or the Ten Plagues, the Ten Commandments? Even in our post-Christian culture, this is fairly common knowledge. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens 
whomever he wills. So the hard part is, how did God hate Esau, and how did God harden Pharaoh? What we can say clearly from Scripture is, God did not create new evil in Pharaoh's heart when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, uh, as an aside, if you go back and read the Exodus narrative, you'll find that the phrase, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is repeated. How many of you know this? Get a couple hands. Kemptons, Bradbury's. So the phrase, um, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is actually a refrain through the narrative of the plagues and the judgments of God on Pharaoh. But it alters approximately, almost exactly every other time. In Exodus it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then the next time it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the next time it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it does that, and it continues that. Moses wrote that, and he's trying to teach us something about free will, God's choice, my choosing, God's hardening, God's election, my responsibility for my own hard heart, my responsibility for my own hard heart. We've read in Romans so far that all alike are under sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no question as to whether any of us has a hard heart. But verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's God's fault that your heart is hard. Have you ever said that in your heart? I have. I've blamed God in my heart for the wrong done by people. And if you get this wrong, if you don't answer the questions being asked and addressed here in Romans 9, if you get this wrong, you may be locked in your doubt and condemned, turned over to judgment for your sin. We need to get this right. Doubt is like a castle. It's like a prison that you get trapped inside. It will keep you from God. You must overcome doubt with the scriptures and with the knowledge of the goodness of God. And we find here these treasures of the goodness of God and the justice of God and the right judgment and the right to choose which Christ has because as God, Christ has the authority to judge and the right to have mercy. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So let's talk about Esau. What we do know is that God chose Jacob and he did not choose, that is, he hated Esau, right? So Jacob gets the promise, Jacob gets eternal life, and Esau didn't, as far as we know, right? How? Did God hate Esau? Was God, I'm just going to say it, was God wrong in hating Esau? What we do know is that God did not make evil in Esau's heart. Esau was odious in the sight of God for his deeds. There was enough evil in Esau's heart for God to be right 
in judging and hating that evil. And so the sinner with his sin was judged. God was not wrong in hating Esau. God was super generous. If you know anything about the life of Jacob, God was super generous to choose Jacob. And is he not super generous, if you know anything about yourself, to choose you? And that is what we see in Romans 9. But what about Pharaoh? Right? I can get the Esau thing. I can get the Jacob I love, but Esau I, I hate it. What about the Pharaoh thing? God did not make new evil in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart, there was enough evil in Pharaoh's heart for God to, he needed to do no more than pass over and not with his restraining grace hold back Pharaoh's evil and grant him mercy. All God had to do is not hold back the evil intentions of Pharaoh's heart and there was enough evil in Pharaoh's heart for it to be most deeply hard. And that's why it says he hardened his heart. Pharaoh, Pharaoh was on a path by his own will and he was responsible for his own sin. So exactly how you answer the question, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? I leave that for you to answer. You can decide. But it was enough for God to not restrain his existing evil intents. Predestination means that our ultimate destiny, eternal life or eternal torment, is decided beforehand by God, before we were born or had done anything good or bad. Said another way, back in eternity past, God decided to save some members of the human race and to pass over others, allowing them to follow the inevitable path of their sin into outer darkness and torment. As we continue reading, we will see that this concept of predestination is clearly taught in Romans 9. It's an unavoidable doctrine. The question for us is, how does God decide? Is it being able to see the future? Does he see whether we are going to be good or bad people? And then make a note to himself of who's who, right? Or does he actually cause us to do good and evil? We just said, God does not tempt anyone. God does not cause anybody to do evil. We're born with it. It's Maybelline, right? But God does biblically cause people to do good. So all of the good you've ever done, you've actually done, but you've been participating in something bigger than you because God likes you. And God has set his heart and his affection on you. And anything good we do, it's because Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you to bear fruit, fruit that will remain. It's God who keeps us abiding in him. We actively participate in that, but it is God who makes it work. The Christian faith doesn't work without God. As we consider these questions, we must consider the context. The best place uh, the best way to consider the context is to recognize it as the love of God. We saw Paul's heart, Paul's earnest love for his people, framing Romans 9 
in the beginning and the end. What did Romans 8 say? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nakedness, danger, famine, sword, persecution, the loss of all things, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And he's going to pick up that theme as Romans go on, goes on. As much as in Romans 8, I think this chapter is filled with the love of God, even though it's very difficult because it talks about the judgment of God and the, the unavoidable judgment of God. The judgment of God is unavoidable unless he chooses to have mercy on you. This chapter is mostly about the love and mercy of God for those who don't deserve mercy. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we can't earn the mercy we need to escape the consequences we deserve. We need to start at the beginning. Answer to yourself the question, when did God know me? Psalm 139.16, your eyes saw my, me as a baby, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, when? When as yet there was none of them. God knew you way before you were born. Next, we need to locate on the timeline the beginning of God's love for us. Ask yourself, when did God start to love me? Jeremiah 31.3. When did God start to love you? Here's um, Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does that mean? It's not going to stop? It means so much more than it's not going to stop. Draw yourself a timeline of the world. The end of the world is up there. You're here. The incarnation of the Son of God into the world is here. The beginning of the world is back there. And before that, only God. God and everything in God's heart and mind, which has never changed, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect communion, in perfect fellowship, and in the heart of God, you. Love for you. The love of God for you had no beginning. It was eternal because He is eternal. What do you think about the doctrine of eternal security now? The answer is God. God is. And his faithfulness to you will carry you through whatever you're going through. This passage is um, settled like a gem. It's set like a gem in the context of the love and mercy of God for those whom he foreknew and predestined. Um, we're going to have to skip ahead as usual because we're over time. And time happens so fast. Let's talk about time. I'm probably not qualified for this. My wife says I have no concept of time. Um, here's God's concept of time. God is outside and above time, right? We've heard that many times. So here's what it looks like. I, at some point, 
chose to follow Christ. I had faith. But Romans said I was given faith. Romans says John and Romans and Daniel and everything. The whole Bible says predestination. I was chosen by God. And then because I was chosen by God, I chose him. Good. So I participated in God's good will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And because of that, I bear fruit that remains. I mature, however far. I mature, hopefully, a lot. And, and I'm conformed to the image of Christ until this earthly body is sown into the ground and raised imperishable, and we see his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And eternal life becomes not more hope and what feels less like reality to hope is dead and the real has come, the fullness has come. It's not like looking through something that's dim. It's not like looking through glasses and not even perceiving basic reality. It's like we see him face to face. That's the context of this passage and this difficult doctrine. Um, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? We kind of covered that. But Paul's answer isn't what I just gave you. And this has everything to do with Josiah's sermon this morning. Paul's answer isn't um, my little logical explanation of this and that and this and that. And that's how, you know, Esau and Jacob and Pharaoh and Harden and hate. And, and it's actually okay, you can believe in this stuff. God's still good and right and just. Paul's answer to these questions, to the question, who can resist his will? You know, why does God still find fault? Paul's answer, verse 20, is the answer that you need if you're going to follow God. This is what we have to get to. It's an inner spiritual enlightenment. It's a truth. Paul says, but who are you, oh human, to talk back to God? When you have that in your spirit, you can follow Christ. When you don't have that in your spirit, you can't follow Christ. And if you think you are, you're not. Paul says, well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Okay, <laughs> take it down to the logical level. I've got some clay. I'm a potter. I make a pot, okay? I was going to bring it. I have this beautiful little uh, ceramic thing. It's very pretty. It has blue and green and, and teal and like glittering. It's very pretty. It's a little, um, I can't tell if it's an ashtray or a teaspoon holder, um, <laughs> but I use it when we have like I, I meet with Lily and we have tea parties every so often and, and I, I get these little teeny tiny cups that my wife hits to wash and, and I put them on the thing and I put the tea bags, the tea bag goes on them and it's like the most special like little daddy-daughter date fellowship time. This, it's, it's an instrument that that pot, potter, that ceramic uh, ceramicist made uh, for, and it's an object uh, bound for glory and, and what better like sacred or special time than father and daughter uh, sharing this fellowship and, and joy. So then there's, if you lived in the time of Paul and them, uh, there was a lot of clay and a lot of ceramic and stuff like that. There were no, there was no plastic. Even a hundred years ago, there was no plastic. Although, Sydney might correct me on that. I think they were working on inventing it for quite some time earlier, but um, there, like, like clay, Clay got, you know, clay was like weak and you'd, you'd drop it like this far and it'd shatter. Or clay could be fired and, and glazed and decorated. It could be very beautiful. It could be priceless. Clay could be, uh, you know, fired so it was as strong as like, you know, like where do, where do toilets come from? 
Toilets come from a factory, and they're made out of that same stuff that this beautiful little thing I used to hold my daughter's tea bag on daddy-daughter dates are made from. And it's, they go through a big industrial kiln or whatever, and they're fired, and you got porcelain. It's a porcelain toilet. In our country, we have porcelain toilets. Um, that's, a, that's an object purposed for dishonorable, unmentionable things. And I don't want to, in any sense, um, compare the value, the immeasurable value of human life with a latrine. I don't mean to do that. But for sake of illustration, I couldn't think of anything better. There are, there are objects destined for dishonor. There are objects that if one uh, is a cigar smoker, you're going to do nothing with it except stick your cigar. And as a nurse, I meet a lot of smokers, and I meet a lot of smokers who are trying to quit and have tried to quit a million times. And so many of them say to me, it's like, smoking is nasty. And I'm like, you know, it's hard to quit, right? So, so, and they say smoking is nasty while they're dabbing their, their cigarette. And it's, it's a little gross, right? In, the, in that ashtray. That ashtray is a, is a vessel that was made for a dishonorable use. And is it logical for us to say that the person in the factory or the you know, ceramic artist place didn't have the right to make this pretty little thing and didn't have the right to make this just plain thing that was going to be used for whatever? Of course not, that's illogical. What's hard for us is that we're valuable. It's hard for us to swallow in our generation where we have a hyperinflated sense of self, where I'm the king of the world, and I'm like God, and I decide for myself what's good and evil, and nobody can tell me what to do. It's hard for us in that it's a really sinful culture that is in our hearts and minds. Um, a a, a God-centered culture, we would think differently than that. And we have to get there. And, and we need to cry out to God to take us there. And if we can accept, if we can swallow, if we can eat and be satisfied with this doctrine of predestination, if we can read it biblically, Paul's answer for, you know, this is hard to accept, this is hard to swallow, Paul's answer is, who are you to talk back to God? In the little decorative versus ignoble ceramic thing, we all got that. Nobody, nobody thinks an injustice was done on the part of the person who made those two little objects. But yet, we don't want God to do anything bad to us. And so something in our flesh takes that and twists it and says, you're wrong if you judge me. We apply the principle of nobody can judge me and don't judge anybody, part of which is good and part of which is bad, because um, there has to be judgment, otherwise there's unrighteousness in the universe that is never settled. But God is merciful and just. And this is right because the world would be oh so wrong if the wrong were not made right by part justice and part wonderful meekness-making, gratitude-generating, and, and praise-producing mercy. And these are the doctrines we come to here in Romans 9. If all of this seems unfair to you, 
We've got to re-examine our idea that everything that ha has to be equal or it's not good. If this seems unjust to you, then you've really got to rethink that, because it's not. We're super over time. I'm going to continue just a little bit, and I will really try to like, pretty much never do this again hardly. Um, there are two ways to look at this. One is that what we said, that God was right in judging injustice and evil. And the other, and, and, and he's oh, so right for being merciful to others. And oh, that that's me. And oh, that that's you. And earnestly praying for the lost, especially our family, you know, for whom our hearts cry. The other is that life's not fair. And then you're angry at God because there's evil in the world and God's in charge and you don't like it. I got to be honest with you, I used to be on that side. I used to say in my heart, not only is this not fair, it isn't fair, but I can't believe that God is righteous. It seems to me like he's being unjust. We've disproven that, but I couldn't get over it. I'm not sure I can be a Christian, and I waffled. I was attending Bible college. This is what buffeted me, these doubts. Rather, I was trapped inside these doubts. In my last year of Bible college, I came up to that question, why does God have mercy on some but not on others? And while reading Romans 9, I stopped asking that in such an angry way towards God. And I started, which came out of my pride. And I started asking, wait a second, why did God have mercy on me? I don't want to be too derogatory or too self-deprecating. Um, I don't know of a better word than loser. That's like super disrespectful, and I feel like it kind of takes away something of the image of God and man, but I don't know how better to say it. I was in a tight spot. I was in a tough place. I was, uh, I was in a, some, you know, I was kind of in a low place. I was troubled. That's a better word. Um, and I got it. And I started grappling deeply with the question, but why did God have mercy on me? And that's the question you need to transition to, and that will get you through this, because these are difficult questions. And if you're like Paul, you're going to end up being filled with the knowledge of the love of God and this deep conviction that indeed nothing can separate you from the love of God. And simultaneously, if your heart is filled with compassion for the lost, maybe family, your heart is going to be filled with unceasing anguish, like Paul's unceasing anguish in your heart. And that's okay. God weeps too. If you're here today struggling with, why did God let that happen? Why does God let these things happen, evil? Why did God choose me over somebody else or whatever? Draw near with me to the cross of Christ, upon which our Savior died for our sins. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If anything was ever unfair, that's it.
land, settle, stand on that foundation. If anything was ever unfair, as hard as these, these things, this doctrine of predestination and how exactly it should be worked out is, stand on the foundation that if anything was ever unfair, it was that the unrighteous was condemned for, the, was the, the righteous was condemned for the unrighteous and that that's you. Stand on that and God will carry you through these difficult things. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Our problem is that we don't want to accept it. We don't want to let God be God. Be still and know that I am God. He says in Psalm 46, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. An hour ago, Josiah said in his message on how to fight pride, if we think we're more important than others, then we'll get more angry than we otherwise would when people do wrong things against us. Apply that to Romans 9. And God's choosing on whom he will have mercy. If we think of ourselves as more important than we are, Josiah said, anger is, a just, is just an emotional response to perceived injustice. If we have an overinflated sense of our own importance, we'll get really mad at God when he chooses to judge some of us for our sins and chooses to have mercy on others. If we have so much pride that we can't let God be God, we'll fall off the cliff instead of ascend the mountain of God. Here's what it comes down to. God does things for his glory people of God, and are good. As God, Christ has the right to judge and the ability to have mercy. Like Paul, you may be filled with pain and anguish for your kin, family members who, as far as you can tell, are headed for destruction. And for them, we cry out to God for mercy. At the same time, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because Christ is God. As God, the Christ has the right to judge and the ability to have mercy. Amen.